0: This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manis. On today's program, we enter the technicolour world of Swedish creative Moki Cherry. We also learn about sustainable timber structures with white architecture, and we discuss emerging design talent in Poland. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Moki Cherry was a Swedish designer, artist and educator, prominent in the 1960s and 70s. After training as a fashion designer, her creative path shifted after meeting jazz musician Don Cherry and time spent on the road with him and their young family in tow. Her work is now on display at London's Institute of Contemporary Arts, or ICA, with an exhibition called Moki Cherry Here and Now. It showcases the sheer breadth of her work, which spans textiles, ceramics and woodwork. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, headed down to the ICA
1: to find out more. The reason why we wanted to do a Mukherjee exhibition is because we cherish the artists that are interdisciplinary, that don't put themselves in boxes, but are just like creative, full stop. She is an example of where art and life meet. My name is Bengi Ünsal, and I'm the director of Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. Her determination for artistic survival is very clear throughout her career because she had to balance motherhood and her own practice while she was touring with her creative partner, who's a renowned jazz musician, Don Cherry. While she was bringing up her children, Nene Cherry and Eagle Eye Cherry, which we know from the contemporary music world. When she was fixed in one spot at their home, she just had an open door policy to collaborators and artistic community. I love the fact that she uses textile and you can see that it's old. There are bits and pieces of it that are stained. When you go to a museum, maybe, and looking to a painting, it's kind of preserved so much. But when you look at Moki's work, you can see that it has lived like all those multiple lives, you know, and that's what I love about it.
2: My name is Naima Carlson and I am a granddaughter of Moki Cherry and I work looking after her estate and artworks and the Cherry Archive which is the collections and archival material of my grandparents Don and Moki Cherry. Moki really, from her kind of like late teens, she was really focused on studying pattern cutting. She also worked in a women's fashion house making coats. She went on to study in Stockholm at the Beckman School of Design, where then she was there like quite a few years redeveloping really all her skills as a fashion designer. That's really where their like creative basis and education was through different circumstances meeting Don Cherry who became her partner, a partner jazz musician from the United States through them also having a family together and then just like many different life circumstances of constantly having to move places and often not having work etc needing to survive her career took a totally different direction she first started painting stage sets and then realized that that really wasn't practical because she'd just have to leave them behind and they couldn't travel. They were often just like traveling with a few bags. She quickly realized she could use her textile skills to make stage environments instead and started making tapestries. First, she was mainly making them for like the posters for a concert and making costumes and then they kind of like grew and became larger and you know, she made some incredible and really large tapestry pieces. It was really like through a need for survival, which I think is actually a really important aspect of her work, that she reinterpreted the like, conventions of like textile and her skills of design and sewing to make these like huge textile applique pieces that were then used in many different projects.
3: this exhibition brings together lots of different um, media. We've got video in this room over here, we've got the textiles as we've spoken about. How important was it to showcase the breadth of Moki's work and that she was not confined to one media?
2: Being involved as a co-curator in this show for me it was a great opportunity to be able to be really involved in the artwork selection process. And Moki is well known for the textiles that she made. I really kind of wanted to show that she worked in many other mediums over different decades she often would like really be focused on one material on um, say the wood sculptures light sculptures collars ceramics yeah it was really important for me to make sure that this show included some of these other works also from later time periods in the exhibition we made sure to include and like show that how she worked throughout you know the different times in her life There is was one motto that I came
3: across um, that Moki lived by and that was the stage is home, home is a stage. It seems to me that it was really important that there wasn't this barrier or delineation between her practice and her home life. Could you talk to me a little bit about what that was like maybe growing up?
2: Yeah, it's a quote that people really love and are inspired by from Moki. Being her granddaughter and having grown up with her I guess it's kind of a really different perspective, but I think that definitely for me, what that really means is how much her artwork and creativity is completely embedded in everyday life. Living in your practice and really living day to day for creativity and creating and discipline as well, like really m- making sure to use your time to put into you know the things that she believed in creatively, but at the same time, that might just be the space where you live, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that every day is like thinking about making something for an exhibition. It could be much more just the way you approach cooking a meal, repairing clothes or making clothes or in the garden, all these things. When I think about it more, I try to really understand what maybe she meant by that stage is home and home as stage. And I guess it's really like bringing into daily life what you find meaningful, what you want to be creating for them, you know, bringing the music and artwork into daily family life. When there were performances and what I think was quite radical in a way, what Don and Moki did, for example, their organic music theatre project, in the performances was also children there, you know, it was like bringing together like your family life with like jazz music was not so conventional at the time. It's kind of quite revolutionary in a way, I think, to, like, say, well, you're just going to bring onto the stage exactly what, what you believe in in your daily family life and ways that those kind of, like, values and daily practices can also be shared with an audience and be educational and also be part of your performance and not sort of differentiating, I guess, taking away some of that sort of institutional professionalism and being more, like, organic about it.
3: I wanted to ask about the role of education in that. I mean, you kind of touched on it there that inclusion of children and not sort of shying away from the unexpectedness they might bring to a
2: space. And Mm. for you, how does education fall into this? Moki always had a focus on working with children. And for example, even in early designs, I've seen of when she was still studying at college, she made this kind of like instructions for children to make costumes she did some like editorial jobs involving children and family so i think that that was obviously always something that she was interested in in the later writings in the 2000s that she kind of basically was talking about how many of the like new york galleries didn't really appreciate what she was doing but that children had always been a consistent audience for her <laughs> <laughs> Both her and Don were very much, um, in their collaborations especially, really focused on working with children education was really a focus and I think that they really believed in wanting to do something that also was really benefiting other people not just doing things for their own career but doing something that actually could make an impact hopefully make a difference so I think that they were really thinking about how reaching children is like also contributing to the future to the next generation you know so they traveled especially 1972 they went and traveled all around Sweden to 88 schools in one year teaching children's workshops where they would bring lots of different instruments, bring the tapestries and like learn songs from the tapestries, learn songs from a country where a certain instrument was from and they basically spent one whole year just doing that and that was really a priority for them. But it's interesting because they still combine that with having concerts at jazz festivals and Moki had you know, a solo exhibition with a lot of artworks in, in the next year. So it was really all interconnected and then like their own children were there pretty much all the time also helping to teach the workshop.
3: wanted to ask about the word useful because a lot of these pieces are beautiful to look at but they are quite practical
2: too. The majority of the works are often things that can be used or a version of something that you would have in the home. You know she made lots of lamps that were sculptures there's a piece in the exhibition that is a lamp wood carved sculpture that also is a mirror that was also hanging in our house for many years. It's always like another use there's a textile that's also a doorway <laughs> Clothing or, you know, even bags and, of course, many of the tapestries, the majority of them, they were really thought of as and intended as artworks. They also ended up being used as stage sets. They also ended up being used in different bedrooms in the home. That usefulness is like, well, you know, you can roll it up and easily put it in your bag, even just with of several textiles, you can cover a whole stage or you could transform a completely empty room into a really creative space or a classroom. So definitely functionality was something that um, Moki was always keeping in mind. Your role as an archivist,
3: I mean looking after the estate and all of these pieces. What do you want to ensure the legacy or the continued enjoyment of these these works sort of going forward? What's in the forefront of your mind?
2: Yeah, it's really been a gradual process that I'm learning while I'm doing it. I helped Moki growing up a lot of the time with her exhibition, so it was sort of natural to continue with it after you know she passed away what is now becoming the Cherry Archive. Documentation, as well as many things collected by Moki and Don, and many images and documentation of all their projects, but also, like, letters. For me, I feel like it is, as an educational resource, really, really inspiring to see also how the combination between visual art with, like, jazz and improvised music, this archive and collection somehow, like, really shows all of those kind of like interactions that I think now is still really inspiring. We're still like in the early kind of like days of really organizing all the material and digitizing things. My goal is that it could be like a digital resource that can be used by students, artists, musicians, researchers, because it really is quite an interesting piece of cultural history there.
4: Yeah.
0: exhibition curator Naima Carlson, and before that, Ben-Gi Unsal, the ICA's director. They were speaking to Maylee Evans. And thank you to the Cherry Archive for the wonderful audio that you heard woven underneath those conversations. The exhibition, Moki Cherry, Here and Now, is on at London's Institute of Contemporary Arts until the 3rd of September, 2023. Alexandra Hagen is the CEO of White Architecture, one of the world's foremost design studios. The firm is presenting at this year's Venice Biennale with a showcase called 150,000 Trees in reference to its Sara Kulturhus project, a timber building erected in Sweden. The firm's display in Venice unpacks the use of timber in architecture and the fact that it is now being hailed as the sustainable material of choice. And while it is somewhat celebratory, the presentation also stresses that architects and developers need to consider sustainability in terms of technology, supply chains and beauty too. Earlier this year, in Venice, I caught up with Alexandra Hagen, CEO of White
1: Architecture.
4: We have recently completed one of the world's tallest timber buildings and we are exhibiting on the impact that such a building has on the forest with clear cutting of the forests and such. So we really want to raise um, the question how do we come to a responsible way of constructing timber buildings and how can we reduce the effect on our ecosystems.
0: Maybe that's the challenge of it. I mean there's the appeal of, of timber we hear that it's you know an incredibly sustainable building material because it can sequester carbon but what are you addressing or what are you looking at in terms of that environmental impact?
4: Is the impact that a lot of the forests are becoming plantations rather than forests and Sweden being a very small country we are one of the three largest exports of timbers in the northern hemisphere and we don't only want forests that are plantations because they are less resilient with climate change. We need that diversity in order for the forest to survive over time.
0: How do you hope that, I guess, these discussions inform the way that we build? Is there anything that you're hoping will come out of this?
4: To be a little bit philosophical, it's down to human behaviour and our need to always have more. I mean, what is enough and how can we live happily and feel that it is enough?
0: So the shift is maybe less about architecture, but more about what we demand of our buildings. Is that fair?
4: Yeah, could be fair. How are we more responsible with our resources? And do we really need all of these large buildings, large homes, several homes to be happy? Or is it more important to be just, that everyone has a home, and that we take care of our living environment long term.
0: Where does quality come into that? Is it about using good materials that are going to last and stand the test of time? Is it about making sure that everybody has a home? Is that also making sure that they don't just have a home, but they have somewhere where they feel fulfilled?
4: Architecture is always about then also trying to build a sense of community. And of course, when you're standing here in Venice, we are reminded that you can build buildings that you can still use 800 years later. People cherish them and, and love them. And then we're back to the design aspect. Beauty is so important for buildings to be loved and survived over time because buildings that don't have that quality of beauty, they are disposed of. People tear things down that they don't love. So we need to build beautiful things that last over time.
0: That was Alexandra Hagen of White Architecture. The exhibition, 150,000 Trees, is on at the Venice Biennale until the 26th of November, 2023. Finally, to close this episode, I'm joined in the studio by Monocle's Grace Charlton. Welcome back from Wodz, Poland. Uh, how does it feel to be back in the UK?
5: Yeah, it's nice. It was a really interesting trip. I'd never been to Poland at all. And I think everyone was a little bit surprised that I started with Wodz and not Krakow or you know Warsaw. But it's fine. It was really interesting. First little foray.
0: I think uh, probably worth pointing out that this did take place a few months ago. But uh, the, the work that you saw there, I guess, is sort of enduring and, and certainly prompted discussions in our Monocle Minute on Design newsletter. Uh, and, and you had a host of interviews that you picked up along the way, and we just thought it was it was nice to maybe unpack them in a, in a longer form on the show. Why were people surprised that you started there?
5: I think it's quite a small town. It used to be really industrial, which actually makes it an interesting place to be a sort of like more of a design hub. It used to be where all the textile manufacturing happened for many centuries until the implosion of communism in the 90s. And now there's this design school there, and they create this design festival called Witch Design Festival. And it was really interesting to go there and meet young designers and sort of hear what's on their minds.
0: You mentioned industry there, and I think as somebody that didn't attend, that's what I kind of find fascinating about it because in my mind... These design festivals, they're typically in the big cities, they're in the capitals or they're very commercially driven and commercially minded in terms of like designers there to network, brands are there to sell. I'm, I'm thinking about the Salone del Mobile and the and the Three Days of Design and the Stockholm Furniture Fairs of the world. Whereas this is, is very much about Polish designers and celebrating Polish design in a country where you're typically associating it with manufacturing. I think there are a host of brands across Europe that turn to Poland for its manufacturing prowess, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, this was an industrial city in, until the 90s. What are you seeing on the ground in terms of the design scene that maybe flies under the radar? What's what's making Watch special and, and a reason to go?
5: I mean, I think in terms of its geopolitical location the invasion of Russia is like very it's weighing heavily on these young designers' minds they're trying to create like actual solutions I think you're right maybe you know designing for a purpose I I mean I love a beautiful chair but have we had enough should we stop creating yet another like commercial project but I think Like a lot of them were sort of responding to waste in the manufacturing industry or like climate change or again, the war because Poland borders with Ukraine.
0: These designers are almost like well-placed to deal with, you know, very pressing issues that society at large is is experiencing, like across Europe is experiencing, but because of the actual location of it, perhaps pressures of supply chains of security and safety are are more front of mind than they would be if, if we're, you know, attending a design festival in London. I mean, is Is there a designer that you'd like to kick off with and and introduce us to?
5: So I met with a young designer. His name is Piotr Tuscht and he specialises in these off-road vehicles. He actually works with his father, and they've founded this company called Da Orfo Automotive, um, and what originally started as like trailers for camping and sort of off-road carrying stuff has now developed into this like evacuation vehicle for soldiers who've been hurt on the battlefield and need to be evacuated. So that was really interesting. And he studied like industrial design at the Academy of Fine Arts in Krakow.
6: When the war started, uh, we was thinking how we can help. And we were thinking about Uh, our pros and and cons of of our concepts and the the biggest pros was the suspension which is capable of carrying the person which you actually shouldn't uh, be carrying person on the road but in the special reality of war you use uh, these things people are being carried in the back of the car and it's not the best way to carry them so we were trying to design it more uh, human way. So the concept is an off-road trailer which has a, a protective cage on top where can be transported a wounded person and two rescuers who can take care of the person while riding. Ukraine is our neighbour, so, and we know that the, that reality. Pretty much we can understand it. So there, there was a big movement of, of Polish people helping Ukrainians, and we also sat down and think how we can help.
5: So that was Pyotr Tushche talking about his project. And
6: I think what what jumped out for me about
0: his work is, look, it's it, it, he's, he's focused his attention on, on what's happening in Ukraine, but the way that this could be applied to, you know, other design problems uh, across the globe in terms of, you know, rescue teams bringing people down from mountains or, you know, going into, you know, an area that's perhaps been devastated by a, a natural disaster. And there may be things that designers wouldn't be working on if they weren't in this, you know, really tough and really challenging geopolitical situation. So I think you, you hit sort of hit the nail on the head there. Is, is that a theme you noticed through? And, and maybe is there, is there someone else or, or another designer that was responding to those sorts of those sorts of issues?
5: Yeah, so the winner actually of a competition called Make Me at Witch Design Festival. So that's a competition for designers who are under 35. He won with this 3D printable tourniquet that you can print on the battlefield and use to help the wounded. There were other people who created all these things for people suddenly becoming refugees and having to move to different countries, so like portable tables and cutlery and You know, also, but like more sentimental things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like a travel photo album, so where you can keep your precious pictures and not lose them.
0: That sounds like it's sort of also about designing just very practical things that are equally portable. But I imagine there was also some sort of discussions around the way that we build as well. I've seen this as a trend across the course of this year. There's a real focus on, on materials building sustainably. So it's not just responding to crisis, but I guess it's, uh, or, or immediate pressing crisis, but it's, you know, longer term ones like environmental issues that we're facing. Uh, was that also picked up in, in WODGE as well?
5: For sure. And one of the designers I also spoke to, Fania Koleti, who's actually Greek but chose to study. She's doing a PhD at the Eugenius Skeppert Academy of Art and Design in Rocklaw. She took inspiration from climate change in Greece and sort of her frustration with everyone just turning to air conditioning instead of maybe trying to rethink how we could create more natural ventilation. So anyway, she's a ceramic designer and she's created these really beautiful airing bricks that invite natural ventilation to buildings.
7: My intentions were to um, merge uh, traditional uh, techniques with uh, the innovation of uh, 3D printing in ceramics. My project is uh, inspired by ancient technologies. It's an airing brick that creates cooler air, the incoming air to the interiors. I got this inspiration by by this uh, this type of bricks that they are used to cool down spaces uh, without uh, the use of air conditioning or uh, energy that is harmful for the environment and uh, the air quality. I come from uh, Greece, so um, uh, we have uh, issues with uh, heat waves. People are using a lot of air conditioning in, in their houses, in public buildings, and There is a huge issue that affects the temperature of of urban um, environment. This comes, of course, by the um, maximized use of air conditioning. So I decided to introduce a brick that uh, suggests a new uh, solution for the times of uh, climate change, uh, heat waves and um, extreme heat. So
5: that was Fanya Kalati there.
0: Fanya, I guess, is looking at traditional ways of building so that you don't have to rely on technology. I know that the next interview is almost going in the other direction, looking at emerging technologies. We've, we're going to hear from a designer who created a chair informed by uh, AI. Or, or Can you tell me how that worked?
5: I know it was actually, well, I was a little bit, Embarrassed because I I don't know, like I really have this thing with AI, I often just tune out, like I don't really care. I never find it like aesthetically appealing. And then I saw this chair at the exhibition and it was like my favorite by a mile. It's so beautiful. It's made of wood, it looks like it's really handcrafted. But the designer Yannick Vilchuk he used AI to create this design by drawing from a database of just like images of chairs, and then he corrupted it with images of pre-Columbian craft. So then that, like, switched the design a little bit. And it honestly, it looks so cool. It looks like a Zanat piece from Bosnia.
0: I think my thing, and I've obviously been thinking a lot about the influence of AI in design, it's using it in your toolkit rather than relying on it solely. And for me, that actually sounds like he could have done this himself. It just would have taken a lot, lot longer. You know, you could, you could bring together all these chair designs and lay them over each other. You could then, uh, you know, turn to, I guess, Colombian craftsmanship and ultimately create something. But what he's sort of done is almost shortcut it. Is that a fair leap to make?
5: I think he himself as well wanted to like question creativity and like, how are we going to form this new like visual culture and everything? I don't know. Like, I honestly feel kind of conflicted about this project. I also thought the name was really funny me, myself, and AI. I I spoke to him because I was also like just really curious to hear more about his process and
8: why he did this. For designers it can be like on one hand kinda scary because yeah AI is getting better and better and this is only the beginning probably but on the other hand uh, it can be a like, super useful tool to like get some references get some new new ideas to to work with so that's that's super cool uh, I mean it could also like be more developed to I don't know to give some regular people tool to design themselves people who don't know like 3D software so they can just tweak the, the parameters and make them their dream chair or so yeah. It kinda like or maybe no no I take that back. Not for just the regular folk but for everyone. It kinda refers more to the like the essence of creativity. Can can computers be be creative, and can they really like can is it just just for humans that we can uh, you know, come up with new new stuff, or can the AI do it as well?
5: That was Yannick Vilchak.
0: What I do like is he, he he mentioned using AI as a tool. You mentioned you were conflicted about, I feel the same. But I, th- I think viewing it through that lens as, as a tool that we can use to inform work, not necessarily, I guess, make the work you still need to have somebody operating it and implementing it I think for whatever reason that gives me a sense of peace
5: I think I was reassured that okay the design was used in dialogue with AI but then ultimately to actually make it and make this beautiful chair it was all handcrafted and I, I think that's awesome that's that's important
0: a hundred percent important I think I think there's maybe maybe it's the fear that we're losing our almost like connection to each other, our, our sense of humanity in, in relying and, and turning, turning to these sorts of technologies. We've got that, those three, I guess, very broad interviews there. What what was your big overarching takeaway from, from your trip to Poland?
5: I think it was just really interesting to get out of, like we mentioned at the top, but, you know, getting out of Milan, getting out of Copenhagen, expanding your horizons, not to sound like really cheesy, but I came back thinking like, wow, you know, there's a real design movement here and I'm finding it really fascinating and they've got their own you know, causes and aesthetics
0: to refer to. So the big message, I guess, for everyone listening is to get out there. Go to which. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She edited the show with help from Sarah Nickel. I'm Nick Manice, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.